turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians. Okay, Ephesians. Uh, there's a group of four books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Uh, the way I remembered those, somebody taught me these when I was, taught me when I was young to remember those four, go eat popcorn. I know some people remember the General Electric Power Company. Uh, there's many off, little acrostics that can help you, but that's how I remember it. And so Galatians, Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But this morning, we're continuing our series before we get into the book of Philippians, which is coming up here soon. Um, we're continuing our series entitled, as you can see, Ology, a study of basic Christian beliefs. And obviously, the word ology means the study of. And uh, we've... Uh, covered already bibliology. Am I not in control? No control. Okay. Um, we, what's that? Uh oh, no, no. <laughs> now, now I'm in. There we go. There we go. Okay, here we go. We covered bibliology. Uh, what about the Bible? Anthropology last week. Who is man? This week we'll be covering soteriology. What is salvation? The word soter, the Greek word to save or to rescue. So we get the word soteriology. Doxology, how do I, how, one, how do I worship? Doxology, two, how do we worship? Ecclesiology, uh, uh, what is the church? It's where, the, uh, where we get the word church is from the word or gathering, ecclesia. Doxa, doxa means to worship. And then eschatology, uh, esca means to the end. What about the end? So uh, that's what we're going here. You can see we're kind of uh, almost halfway through soteriology this morning. And my hope, again, is that everyone here will either have le- ha- will lay a foundation, will strengthen their foundation, or maybe repair some cracks in the foundation that you've laid. And you'd be surprised how many people will walk as a Christian for many, many years, and you get to talking with them, and you realize that no one ever taught them about what was the what's so big about the Bible? No one taught them just some basic things about uh, about man and, and that we're creating the image of God and we have value because we're creating the image of God or how someone saved and really thought through that. And, and, and so it's almost you have to go back and say, hey, let's go look at these foundational things because without these foundational things, you really can't move on. You can't really grow and and be all the Lord wants you to be. So that's what we're doing this series. It will be a blessing to all of us. So I'm going to read uh, these 10 verses here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let me just say this. I believe in 10 verses, this is the clearest presentation of the gospel in all of Scripture. If you had 10 verses, you gave me 10 verses to present the gospel to someone, I'd take in these 10 verses right here. That's how clear I think they are when it comes to presenting the gospel and talking about salvation. So let me read these 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not a result of, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we come again to your word, this marvelous passage in this book of Ephesians that speaks of how great you are, that you are the God of salvation. And Lord, I pray for all of us more, wherever we are, whether we have been saved, whether we have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether we haven't, well, may we be encouraged and challenged and changed from our time this morning in your word. And Lord, I pray you would use your word exactly in the right way for each of us. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, the word made flesh. Amen. Well, how many of you all have heard of the Trail of Tears? Right? The Trail of Tears. And the Trail of Tears, officially the Trail of Tears, this is the definition on Wikipedia. It's got to be right. All right, here's the Trail of Tears. I could give you the slang, but I, I thought this was interesting. Is a name given to the ethnic cleansing, and that just broke my heart as soon as I read that. The name given to the ethnic cleansing and forced relocation of Native American nations from southeastern parts of the United States following the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Terrible time in, in our country's history. Shameful. And it's not talked about as much as it is as, as another shameful act of slavery was with African Americans in our country. But it's just shameful. But there's a story told during this time, and it took about 10 years for this all to happen, as they would take one tribe and they move them out west. A lot of them are in, in Oklahoma. Uh, many of them fought and stayed where they are. That's why we have Cherokees still in North, Car- North Carolina. They're a little tougher than the, the, the Anglos that came around. They kind of st- stuck in there. And some of them pocket, but um, over 45,000. Um, uh, American Indians were moved out west, relocated. But during that time, there's a story told about one particular Indian who, who had come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And one of the army chaplains had heard about this. And he had to be, he had to, happened to be going along with these Indians and, and many of the people in the army to help move them out, out west. And he wanted to look up this Indian, so he began to ask around, and he found this particular Indian who held a, a high position in, the, in, in his particular tribe. And, um, and he asked this Indian... Hey, can you please explain to me your salvation experience? I want to know. So this Indian didn't say a word. He just where they were where they he just went over and he got some leaves, and he he gathered these leaves and he made this like this little little, little ring of leaves, and he took this little caterpillar and he set it in the middle of that ring of leaves. Just dropped it right down there, right in the middle of the ring of leaves, and then he took some fire. And he set that ring of leaves on fire. And just as that fire was getting ready to engulf that little caterpillar, the Indian reached out and he snatched that caterpillar from the jaws of death. And he said, that's my salvation experience. And the truth is, anyone who's ever been saved by God has been saved just like that. That's our salvation experience. Well, last week we were reminded that mankind was created in the image of God, but they failed to fulfill their purpose of glorifying God. And in fact, we learned that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, God must save us from the eternal and certain death of hell. He must save us. He must rescue us from that. And we not, we not, not only need to be saved, saved from the penalty of sin which is 
death and hell separated from God forever. But we also need to be saved from the power of sin daily. We also need to be saved ultimately from the very presence of sin. So here's the truth. If you know Christ today, you have been saved, you are being saved, and one day you will be saved. See, often we just stop at the first one. We miss the whole thing. We miss the big part of salvation. It just, it's just on a one-time act and it's all over. But God is in the process of saving us all the time. And this passage, thankfully, speaks clearly about uh, that great process, that great thing that we call salvation and gives us an even better picture than the Indian on the Trail of Tears. Even though that's a great picture, this one's even better. Why? Because it's the Word of God. All right, well, as we look and examine these 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 2, and I encourage you to follow along with me in your, in your copy of God's Word, we're going to come to fa- face-to-face with seven truths concerning salvation so that we would marvel at the amazing grace of God and live for His glory. But before we do that, we need to briefly consider what? starts with a C. Context. It's exactly right. We always want to see the context in which we're looking at God's Word. So here's the context of these ten verses. Um, that These ten verses in all of Ephesians, he passed on to this church called Ephesus. And believe that he wrote this book in his first imprisonment in Rome, which was probably between 60 and 62 A.D. But listen to this. He spent almost three years in the church of Ephesus. He spent more years in the church of Ephesus than any other church. So when you read this, you go, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, no wonder he writes what he does in these, in these six chapters because uh, he knew these people. And he was able to just jump right in on some pretty amazing things. Uh, but but he, he knew them well. If you could break down the book of Ephesians kind of in two sections, the first three chapters, truth. The first three chapters, the last three chapters, walking in the truth. Or you, you could break it down this, the first three chapters, the Christian's calling, and the last three chapters, four through six, the Christian's conduct. But they go hand in hand. You can't separate them. And, but that's how Paul presents this. And in chapter one, Paul has just reminded these believers in Ephesus of the immense blessings they have in salvation. That they've been given, that they've been redeemed, and the blessings that they have because of that. Now Paul is going to remind these believers how they got to this privileged position. So he talks about this amazing privileged position, this blessing that they have of being in Christ in chapter 1. Now he's going to remind them how they got there. And I'm telling you right now, we all need to be reminded of how we got there. We really do. We need to go back. You know, they, they tell you never to forget where you came from. You don't ever want to forget where you came from. Because it gives God more and more glory when we understand where he came from and how he got us from here to here. And that's what he's doing here in these ten verses. So let's look at these ten verses. And the first truth in our passage concerning salvation is the need for salvation. The need for salvation. Look there in verses 1 through 3 at Paul, how Paul describes these believers before they were Christians. They were apart from Christ. All right? He says, and you were. He's talking past tense. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now notice, those without Christ are dead. Obviously, he's not speaking of physical death. We see people without Christ. You and I once were, if you're here that know Christ, we were once without Christ. 
and we walked around and we breathed and we did actions and we talked and, and sure looked alive, didn't we? But this is obviously talking about spiritual death. They're dead spiritually. They look alive, but they're actually dead in what really counts. Uh, as most of you know, I've been to Russia several times. And I've never been to Moscow. I've always been to St. Petersburg and the surrounding regions. But in Moscow, they have this, I think I mentioned this to you before, they have this amazing thing. It's a mausoleum where you can go in and see the body of Vladimir Lenin, or just Lenin for short. Soviet leader who died in 1924, and they've preserved his body since then through a bunch of chemicals and all this amazing scientific process they've kept alive and, and kept his body there and and you can go look at it and they, now take it out to do some um upkeep to it a lot all right um but they the, his skin is actually you know it, it looks alive and many people will come they'll look he looks like he's just sleeping he, he looks like he's alive but the truth is is that vladimir lenin is dead and you can sneak up on him and say boo and nothing will happen they could take paddles and boom and nothing will happen because he's dead. He may look alive like he's sleeping, but he's really dead. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm, he's talking about spiritual death. People may look alive, but without Christ, they are dead. Uh, I, I, I love what uh, Warren Wiersbe says. He says, the unbeliever is not sick. He's dead. He's not, he does not need re- resuscitation. He needs resurrection. All lost sinners are dead, and the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. They're dead. All sinners, all those apart from Christ are dead. And this is, this is a state of, let me say this, this is a state of all men and women except for Jesus who were born in this world. I, I know I mentioned this and I, people, I can say it about my own children. All right? And I say it all the time. They are born sinners just like you and I were. As cute as they may be. They are born sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. Not, not what I teach, it's what the Bible teaches. All people. And Paul speaks about this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Talking about mankind because of all sin. It's part of the makeup of everyone who is born in this world. To be dead in our trespasses, and the word trespasses means false steps, and sins means missing the mark, speaks about a rebellion against God, is speaking of the fact that we were all born with a sinful nature. Those, that's the sphere. We were, we were dead in those things. We didn't become dead because we did those things. We did those things because we were dead. And, and Paul's going to prove well, prove that. Well, Paul's going to prove it here right after this. All right? That, that this, this thing called sinful nature. And you could say that we were born dead. We were born dead. Uh, this is the universal problem with all people. Uh, and let me, when I say all people, again, I've said this, but I want you to see this in, in, in the passage. Notice in verse 1, he says, And you, who's he speaking to? The Gentile believers in Ephesus. And then look at verse 3 with me. He says, Among them we too. The Jews too. Jews and Gentiles. We're all born in this slate. This is the problem with all mankind. But they're dead. Now, many people call this total depravity. And, and you may have heard that word before, and maybe you've misunderstood it. Um, to be totally depraved means that every aspect of a person is tainted by t- sin. 
Every aspect of a person is tainted by sin. Or to say it another way, there's no part of a human, mind, will, emotions, heart, that has not been affected by sin. In this sense, it's total. It's affected all parts. Now, some people think total depravity, that mankind can never do any good. Well, ultimately, they don't give glory to God, but there's never any good that mankind can do. That's just not true. All right? Uh, there, there's things when we can act and we can actually do kind things to each other apart from Christ. Now, they're usually done for selfish motives, but they're kind things, right? But it means that all aspects, mind, will, emotions, heart, has been tainted by sins. They've all been affected. That's what total depravity means, the totality of our being. All right? Um, Paul goes on to show evidences. Here's what I'm saying when I say, okay, why is it they committed sin because they were dead? Well, let's just, he's just going to say, hey, I'm just going to show you evidence that the people are dead spiritually. And he does this in verses 2 and 3. Look there with me. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says in an unbeliever's walk, the way that they live shows that they were totally depraved, shows that they were dead. And, and, and this is seen in three ways. He gives three different ways that we can see that there's death, there's spiritual death in the life of a person, and that we were dead like this. The first phrase, walked according to the course of this world. And it's speaking the word, the word world here. It's not talking about the greenery and, and the, and, and the, uh, um, the water and all those kind of things. It's talking about, just like we saw in the book of John, the world system that's against God, that wants to eliminate God from everything that hates God. That's the, they walk according to the course of the world philosophy is another good way to put it. Uh, secondly, another evidence that, that they're dead spiritually, people without Christ, according to the prince of the power of air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The person living in opposition to God is following after the one who promotes this lifestyle, being Satan. So they live this way and they follow after the one who wants them to live this way. All right. Thirdly, you see, and, and let me say this too, you see the, son, there's the word sons of disobedience. And what that means is these sons resemble their father. And as Jesus said in John, that their father is the devil. So the, these sons of disobedience, are they following after their father. Uh, and, and thirdly, among the, the, the third way we can see that they're dead spiritually is among them we too all formerly live in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of flesh and of the mind. And the word flesh here speaks of the sinful human nature. Uh, this nature gives in to sin naturally. The most natural thing for someone apart from Christ to do is to sin. That's the most natural thing for them. Because that's, who, that's inside who they are. Is someone who does things for what they get out of it and glorifies himself. Now let me say this too, and we'll come to this another day, but the most unnatural thing for a believer to do is to sin. That's the most unnatural thing for a believer to do, is to sin. We, we sin, but it's an unnatural thing for a believer to do. So we'll keep moving on, all right? We'll, we'll probably come to that here in, in, in near the end. Um, now it's obvious as we look at this that there's evidence of, in the life of a believer that they are spiritually dead. I'm an unbeliever. They're spiritually dead. That's ev it's ev He says, look, here's the evidence. I'm bringing the evidence before the court. Would you say these people are spiritually alive or spiritually dead? And we look at the evidence, we would say they're spiritually dead. 
because they follow after the course of this world and follow after Satan and they live after the flesh. Therefore, since all mankind without Christ is spiritually dead, notice where they find themselves before God. Look at the, near the, the last part of verse 3. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Those without Christ are objects of God's wrath. Such a cheery subject, isn't it? Object of God's wrath. And people have a hard time with this. That's just not true. God wouldn't be wrathful. I, you know, I'm not the one who said it. Look at this in John 3, 3, 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is in the, this is in the gospel of love right here. We just studied it. That those without Christ, the wrath of God abides on them. Why are those without Christ children of wrath? And why does the wrath of God abide on them? Here's why. Because God is just God and he must punish sin. He must. What would you say if uh, someone became before the court um, uh, of law and they were accused of stealing a Porsche? And the judge pulled up video surveillance of them stealing this Porsche. And then the judge goes, you know, we can see you stole the Porsche. You're guilty, right? Yeah, guilty. Ah, no big deal. See ya. What would we say of that judge? He, that judge, he was what? Unjust. And God is the ultimate judge. He's always just. He can't be anything but just in his actions. So he's just. He must punish sin. Listen carefully to this excellent definition of God's wrath by John Stott. He says, It's God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve to condemn it. That's the wrath of God. And it's true. It's just as true as God is love. It's who God is. Now, often you hear people say, You need to get saved, right? You just need to get saved. Well, saved from what? That's why this is so important. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from God. That's what people need to get saved from, is saved from God. Now, how do we get there? We're sinful, right? That's how we got there. That's why we're in the wrath of God. But we really ultimately need to be saved from the righteous and just wrath of God. You could summarize Paul's statement concerning the state of those without Christ in verses 1 through 3 by saying, they are dead, enslaved, and condemned. They're dead, they're enslaved, and they're condemned. So here we see the first truth in our passage concerning salvation. Man is in need of salvation. Wouldn't we all agree? There's a need for salvation. You're thinking, man, this is awful. It's worse than that. It's terrible news. It's the worst news in the world. As bad as you think it is, and you wish I would quit talking about it, it's worse than that. Way worse. We can't even imagine how bad this is, how bad man is without Christ. Now, there's a, there's a dignity. We talked about this in the image. You're created in the image of God. There's a dignity that even remains with the, those who don't know Christ. We made that clear, didn't we, last week? I don't want anybody to think that we're, we're saying that person's worthless because they don't know Christ. I'm not saying that. But in their state before God, they're in as bad a pace as they could possibly be, aren't they? Watch what's getting ready to happen, though. This is good. Watch out. All right, here we go. The second truth we see in the passage concerning salvation is the power in salvation. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Why don't you all just read this with me? Verse 4. Here we go. But God. Let's say that again. Just stop right there. First two words. Here we go. But God. 
Those are two of the most, the sweetest words in all of Scripture right there. But God, God is getting ready to break through. Amazing. And the first seven verses here, first I just say that that but is a contrast, and it's the, most, it's the biggest contrast you've ever seen in your life. From verses 1 through 3 through the rest of the passage, it is a huge contrast. And, and, and the first seven verses of this passage in chapter 2 are one sentence. This is one of Paul's run-on sentences. All right, he would get marked off in English class, but he wrote in Greek, and he can do this because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So it's all one sentence. The subject of the sentence is in verse 4, and the subject is God. That's the main subject of these first seven verses, is God. The three main verbs of this passage are made alive, verse 5, raised up, verse 6, and seated in verse 6. And the object is us. So we have the subject is God, we have the verbs, and we have the object. The fact that God is the subject performing the action emphasizes the fact that God is the power in salvation. Let me say that again. God is the power in salvation. He alone can save us from his wrath. After all, we were dead in sin and had no life to save ourselves. Let me, I'm going to read this a couple of times. I'm just trying to think of how to say this. And a lot of times I just write down. I mean, I write a lot down, but I, I make sure that I, when I want to say something exactly how I meant to say it, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. Christianity is not a man-centered self-help religion. Christianity is not a man-centered self-help religion. Instead, it is a God-centered, God-rescuing religion. Not a man-centered self-help religion. Instead, it's a God-centered, God-rescuing religion. So the second truth in our passage concerning salvation is God is the power in salvation. And I'm glad he is. Because we're dead. We don't have any power. He's got the power. And he's the power in salvation. Third truth we see in our passage concerning salvation is the motive in salvation. This is sweet. But God. Here's the motive in salvation. Look in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Here we see God's motive in salvation. We say it again. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And he didn't just say love. He says great love. Notice his motive was not something good in us. Now there's an inherent, again, goodness in man because we create an image of God. But it's not, that's not his motive, something good in us because we're sinful, we're dead. But something good in him. It's his mercy and his great love. That's his motive. That, that's part of the nature of God. In, in a sense, God can't help himself but to love. And that's his motive. God's love made it possible for his justice to be met. Let me say that again. God's love made it possible for his justice to be met so his wrath would be poured out on someone else and not on us. John tells us this in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, that we loved God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. To propitiate means to turn away wrath. I mean, he, he's talking about this here, John says. He, he's, God turned, he loved us. He turned, loved us so much. And he was a just God. He had to punish sin. But he turned his wrath that rightly rested on us, and he turned it on his son. So we'd be rescued from his wrath. In Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Is that, is that love? How many of you all are willing to give up your son or your daughter for a murderer? 
Hey, let's just exchange paces. Would anybody do that? I wouldn't. I'm telling you, no way. Uh-uh. But God did. For those who hated him, he gave up his son. Amazing. Is that love? That's the greatest love we'll ever know. We can't even hardly comp- we can't even comprehend that because we'd never do it. Amazing. Well, the fourth truth we see in our passage concerning salvation is the change in salvation. Let's read verses 4 through 6 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here we see a major change. This goes back to what I explained before, that who is the subject of these first seven verses? God, right? There's three verbs, and there's an object, which is us. God changes us in that he takes us, those who were dead, verse 1, and once it said, he makes us what? Alive. He made us alive. Just as we were totally depraved, that death and sin touched every aspect of our life, so in Christ we are totally alive. Since anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. And his redemption has touched all aspects of our life. God not only changes us from those who are dead to alive, but he changes us in that he takes us, those who were buried in our sin, and what's it say? He raised us up. Those who were buried in our sin. And God changes us in that he takes those who were seated with Satan and cahoots with the devil and he raises and he seats us up in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In a place of honor. Spiritually, that's where we are. We're not physically there. We will be one day. That's where we are. We're in a place of honor. This world is not our, own, this world is not our home anymore. We're citizens of another kingdom. His kingdom. He saves from Listen to this. He saves from death to life. He saves from slavery to freedom. He saves from condemnation to exaltation. That's a change. That's a huge change. He changes us from enemies to friends, from children of wrath to beloved children of God. He changes us from the inside out. Now notice that phrase at the end of verse 5. It says, by grace you have been saved. Now this is a summary statement about this whole transformation that God brought about. By grace you have been saved. And notice it's something, you see it, have been saved. You can see it even as it's past tense, at least in the English. But it's actually in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense again is past action, completed action, with a resulting state of being. Meaning it goes on forever. Another way you could say this is it's a present permanent state as a result of a past action. A present permanent state. It will never change. In Christ we have been changed and saved forever. That's great news. This is the preservation of the Savior. We talk a lot about the perseverance of the saints and I believe that, that those God has saved will remain in faith the rest of their life. They will keep believing. They will keep trusting in Christ the rest of their life. But I'm way more into the preservation of the Savior. He preserves us forever. That's why we persevere. persevere, Because he preserves us. And that's what they're saying. We are saved. Well, the fifth truth we see in our passage concerning salvation is the purpose of salvation. Look at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice the words... 
so that so that it's pointing to God's purpose in salvation so that it tells us he saves people so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus in other words he saves people so that he'll be glorified his amazing grace towards sinners highlights his greatness and it brings him glory Yes, those who are saved are marvelously trained, changed and transformed. And, and, and that's amazing. But this is not that we might marvel in our transformation. But instead, that we might marvel in the amazing God who saved us. Not marveling in our transformation, but marveling in Him. The purpose of salvation is that God would be glorified. The sixth truth we see in the passage concerning salvation is the basis and an instrument, the instrument of salvation. Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The basis of our salvation is God's grace. It's unmerited favor. We get something we don't deserve. We get life when we deserve death. That's grace. That's the basis of and, and, uh, of our salvation. Paul emphasizes this. Look at verse 9. Not a as a result of works, so that no one would boast. We're not saved because we were good enough. Hey, if the goal is to sh swim from here, go to North Carolina, and let's swim to England. All right? I'm, not, I'm, I'm big, and I'm heavy, and I'm not a real good swimmer. All right? So let's say that me and Brandon, who swam in high school, start off. Here we go. And I, you know, I go for like maybe five minutes, zoom, and I just, I just sink. And Brandon, he's a pretty good swimmer, and he just keeps going. And maybe Brandon's training a lot, so he just keeps going for like three hours. He probably hadn't even made five mi two miles yet in three hours, but he's swimming at it. And then after about six hours, he gives out. Who made it? Neither one of us. As good a swimmer as Brandon was, he couldn't make it. And as good as you may think you are, you'll never make it. God's standard is perfection. And we're not perfect. We can't attain his salvation by works. And why was it say? So that no one can boast. If we did it on our own, hey, watch me, God. I'm a pretty good fella. Look at that. I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as this guy. Aren't you so happy to have me up here with you? That's what would happen if we did it by works. And that's what he's saying. It's not based by grace. And Paul says it another way in Romans eleven six. For if by, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's not grace plus works. It's grace. Period. God gives us something we don't deserve. We didn't do anything to earn that. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It's all a gift. Therefore, God gets the glory. Well, the instrument of our salvation is faith. So that's the basis of our salvation is grace. The instrument of our salvation is faith. Trusting in what God has done for us in Christ. That's faith. Trusting in what God has done for us in Christ. Let me, let me say this. No faith equals no salvation. No faith equals no salvation. We will not be saved apart from faith. No way. The scripture is clear about that. The truth of receiving God's gift of salvation is, uh, by faith is taught throughout the scripture. Acts 16.31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. What does it say? Believe. You must believe. You must believe. You won't be saved. 
Second, first, John 1.12, But as many as received him, to him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. You must receive. You must believe. Romans 4.5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. We must believe. Must believe. It's the way, it's the instrument by which we receive this gift. But it's not a work. It's not a work. Now, there's been much made of this next phrase in this passage. That not of yourselves is the gift of God. What is the word that pointing to? What is the word that pointing to? Grace or faith? Is it, is it pointing to grace or faith? That not of yourselves is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? What's not of ourselves? Well, let me, let me give you just a quick, quick Greek lesson. That is neuter in Greek. We don't have that in, in English. It's neuter. So it's neither masculine or feminine. Grace and faith are both feminine. So which one does it point to? Now, it would be easy in Greek if it's, this is masculine, this is masculine, we'd know exactly. If this is feminine, this we'd know exactly. But when something's neuter and there's something before it that is neither, it's, it's not neuter, it's, it's, it's not neuter, it's, it's masculine or feminine, it points to both of them. Grace and faith, the whole process of salvation is a gift of God and it's not of ourselves. A lot of people use this word, and I believe that faith is a gift from God from other places in the passage of Scripture. A lot of people use this passage of Scripture to say that faith is a gift from God. That's not, it is, but so is grace, the whole process. But, but that's not what this is teaching. It's saying it's all a gift of God. So we can't boast. The point is, is that God is the one who gives salvation. God is the one who brings salvation. The seventh truth in our passage, and the last one we're going to look at this morning concerning salvation, is the results of salvation. Look at verse 10. For we are, his, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, many, many people will say, well, how about works? You mean we can just be saved forever? We accept what Christ has done for us. We accept his gift of grace to us. And we can just live like hell the rest of our life, right? That's what a lot of people say. No. Paul would say, may it never be. It can't even happen. It says it can't even give birth in, in Romans 6. Here, Paul says, we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Or you've heard it, the root of, works is not the root of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. Or listen to what John Stott says. Good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its ground or means, however, but as its consequence and evidence. That's what works are there for. And this is taught throughout the scripture. Look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now just stop there. That is not good news. That we've got to work out our salvation. But look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God empowers us. To work out our salvation. He empowers us to do the good works. And he's prepared them beforehand. That we would walk in them. Also I, I was studying this, this, this week. And this passage came to my mind. And I went and looked it up in 2 Corinthians 9.8. And I wasn't studying this. I was studying something else. And, and, and this just fits so perfectly. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything. You may have an abundance for every good deed. Is God concerned about good deed and good works? You bet it is. But it flows from the fact that. We've been saved by grace through faith. That's what it flows from. Not because of anything in us, but from what he has made us into. So the results of salvation are that you will do good works for the glory of God. 
Now, think about this. Remember where the passage began? In verse 2, it says, those without Christ were walking according to the course of this world. Now, watch this. Now, at the end, those with Christ are walking according to God's good works. See? What God does, he takes people who are walking their own way, and he changes them to people who walk his way. And they do things that honor him. What a difference between the beginning and the end of this passage. Verses 1 through 9 dealt with being saved from the penalty of sin. Verse 10 deals with being saved from the power of sin. And here's the good news. Good news. One day the Bible promises we will be saved from the presence of sin. Who's in for that? I am. I am. Two questions. Are you saved? Now you know what I mean. Get saved from the wrath of God. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved you. He gave his son to die in your place that he might turn his wrath from uh, you to him. If you would place your faith in him, if you would trust in what he has done on your behalf, you'll be saved. I'll call you to do that if you've never done that. Here's my other question. If that's happened, are you being saved? Are you trusting in the power of the gospel, the power of the cross in you to overcome sin in your life on a daily basis? Because it's the only way we can. It's through the power of the gospel in our life. He's given the Holy Spirit. He's made us a new creation so that we might walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand. What great news. Well, before we uh, close in a song here, let me say this. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. One of the means of this process of what's called progressive sanctification, that we walk in good works, we overcome the power of sin, is that we get in his word. And his word begins to change us. Or our good friend, Shannon Hurley, who we support in Uganda with SOS Ministries, Sufficiency of Scripture Ministries, has written a book called The Quest for Truth. And he, this is unbelievable, he, a missionary in Africa, is giving our body a copy for every family. This is a missionary in Africa giving to us. Isn't that supposed to be the other way around? Okay, so he's giving every family in here a copy of his book, and they'll be at the exits if I can get some guys to help me pass those out. There's one box back here. There's three up here. If you guys can pass it, every family. Now, here's the, here's the deal. If you want to give a donation and help offset the cost, you can do that. But now, here's the deal that Shannon wants to get across, but you've got to use it. If you're not going to use it, don't take it. And that's not harsh. That's just being honest, right? If you're not going to use it, we're starting to use this in our family devotions, in our family worship time. It's, un- it's great. And it gets you into the Word. It gets you thinking about why is Christianity what it is? And, and what does that mean? What Christ? It's just uh, very well done. It's got questions to ask. So if you'll use this with your family or if you commit, hey, I'll, I'll do this with somebody else. I'll get somebody else to go through this with me. You take one. All right? Now, if you decide, no, I'm not going to do that. But next week, we'll still have one for you. All right? When you decide, hey, we're going to use this, we want you to take it. We want you to use it. So God would be glorified and that we might walk in good works, right? For the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation that is a gift from you, Lord. We are humbled by the fact that you would take those who are your enemies, those who are sinners, and you would change us into your, change us into your sons and daughters who would walk in your way, who would love you. Well, what a miracle. And Lord, we pray that our lives would be a demonstration of the work that you have done in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship this morning?